I went back to Hong Kong and visited an aunt who is Chinese. So she's an aunt with air quotes. And she was like, I need to teach you Chinese culture and food. And I was like, okay. And so I have all of these videos and notes of her just trying to like bring me up to speed. This is fried rice. This is fried noodles. You know, I was like, okay, oh my gosh. Because she was just like, you're not connected to your Chinese mm-hmm. culture. And I legitimately wasn't. Madigan, and you're listening to Home Plates. This week's episode is the last episode for season two, but don't fret, season three is coming to you starting spring quarter. Catch up on season one and two this spring break. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. If you haven't already, subscribe so that you don't miss any new episodes. This week gets a little bit more personal as I sit down with Kimberly to discuss our relationship with food as transracial adoptees. We discuss culture, identity, and some of our own experiences. Stay tuned, this is another episode of Home Plates. Welcome to another episode of Home Plates. Today is going to be a little bit different. I have a special guest with me today, Kimberly. Would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your job and your background a little bit. Hi, uh, thank you Grace so much for having me on the show. It's really exciting to get to meet another podcaster and also to share a different perspective of my life because I don't normally talk every day about being adopted and what, uh, how my ethnic heritage influences my identity as a professional. So, thank you. I am a research chef. I work for a company called Bulletproof They're known for putting butter in coffee, and there's a whole diet associated with that. Um, And I do their food and beverage product development. There's a small team of us, um, and we are based in Seattle. I have a culinary background, but before that I also have a bachelor's in nutrition science um, from Pepperdine University in California. And I have always really been obsessed with food. Uh, My earliest memories are actually of playing in the kitchen next to my mom, learning how to make the recipes that she grew up making. She has Czech American heritage. She grew up in a farm in Minnesota. Um, And then my dad has German Swedish heritage, also grew up in Minnesota. (laughs) And so our holiday traditions were very Germanic and Eastern European, but very much with a Minnesota Midwestern flair. (laughs) So a couple of years ago, my husband and I went to the, uh, like a Scandinavian store in Ballard and I recognized more of their holiday, <laughs> like Christmas decorations than he did. And he actually has Norwegian heritage, um, which I found really interesting. And then I am Chinese heritage. I was born in Hong Kong um, and adopted as an infant. I was actually raised in Hong Kong for a few years before my whole family moved back to the States. And when we did, we moved to South Dakota and then eventually to Colorado. So I also got the pleasure and pain of being the only Asian kid in a school. Um, and then being like a really poor representative of Asian culture to those kids because I was <laughs> So lots of, lots of things we could unpack there. Yeah, well, this is gonna be fun. There's <laughs> a lot to talk about, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess I should have maybe talked about this first. I am also adopted. I'm, I don't think I've talked about that much on this podcast before. But I wanted to explore this topic on this podcast because I feel like 
you know, identity and culture and food really go together. And for adoptees and other people who may have not grown up with their own culture, like, you know, the cultural identity that, you know, they look like and stuff, I think it can sometimes be hard to connect with their culture. And for me, at least, connecting to my Chinese heritage through food has been how I want to connect and identify as Chinese. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of my own personal take on it. So I'm really excited talk to you about it. Let's talk about what made you want to go to culinary school. Like, was it something that you're like, I love cooking, I want to do this? Or did you kind of wander there, I guess? Definitely wandered there. (laughs) Um, Although, if you look at my life, and if someone were to make a movie about my life, it would look like I was always pointing towards professional career in food. When I was in high school, I went to all of the, you know, college fairs where different universities show up and give you sweatshirts and banners and whatever. Um, And the CIA was there, the Culinary Institute, not the Central (laughs) Intelligence. (laughs) Much big disappointment, I'm sure, for my parents who thought they were going to have a spy for a child. And I, I looked at the Culinary Institute then and concluded not to apply there because I didn't want to have a career that was kind of blue collar and apologies to all the chefs out there (laughs) cooking is not blue collar and yet it is Um, and it's very much viewed that way and I wanted I think I allowed my ego to take over and I was like I should get a science degree because I'm smart and I think there was an element of this adopted kid feels like she needs to earn her place by being smarter than everyone It's sort of like an inner tiger drive, and I've never really identified it that way before, but I'm really a competitive person in certain areas, and my intelligence is one of them, and so I didn't want to go straight into cooking because I wanted to have a more impressive-sounding career. So I decided to go (laughs) pre-med, as does everyone, it seems. (laughs) And then once I got into it, I was like, oh, never mind, this kind of isn't my thing. (laughs) And they had a nutrition degree at Pepperdine, and so I was able to talk to my biology professor who was like, why don't you just go down the hall and talk to the nutrition professor? (laughs) I ended up in all of the same classes as all the pre-med kids, except for I can do metabolism from the moment you swallow to the moment you excrete really (laughs) accurately, Um, whereas, you know, biology and pre-med people kind of worry more holistically about the rest of a person's health. So I ended up with, with a nutrition degree, so that helped me acknowledge my love for food. And then actually, fast forward a number of years and a couple of jobs later, I was looking at UW's Masters of Public Health, and I started developing a research question and started getting all of the coursework ready to go, and a mentor of mine literally said, you don't even want to do this program. You are a nutritionist who can cook. You should go to culinary school instead. And it was as, it felt as though someone had just turned the lights on in a darkened room where I didn't realize the lights were dimmed. And I saw everything really clearly in the sense of that absolutely jazzed me up. I was like, oh my gosh, that completely makes sense. So I pulled out of the MPH program. Um, I went and researched all of the culinary programs in the Seattle area um, and concluded that I wanted to go to the Seattle Culinary Academy, which was really known for two things, an emphasis in sustainability for kitchen practices, and then they had really good job placement within the Seattle area. And there were certain chefs in this region who have international fame uh, for some of the things that they do, and I really wanted to work for them. So 
I went to culinary school that way. So I went from a bachelor's halfway into a master's and then down to an associate's. <laughs> and I didn't actually even get that because I got recruited from culinary school to go do cooking with the modernist cuisine team. They were working on modernist cuisine at home, which was their response, sort of, or their follow-up to the big seven-volume book that they started with. So I helped with a couple of recipes for modernist cuisine at home. Uh, I did a summer of promotional dinners with them, met some politicians and some famous chefs, and then um, actually went straight into food manufacturing and research and development for that. So I never actually had to spend uh, the decades on a restaurant line to find research chef work. And a lot of my mentors, you know, spent a decade or two working in restaurants, and then they kind of reinvented their careers into R&D. I was able to go straight into it because I have the science background and got some lucky breaks. That's really cool. I, like, don't know much about that side of, like, food, I guess. For the past three summers, I've worked at Ivers, the one downtown. Each summer, I, like, worked a different position, and so last summer, I got to work the expo line, and Mm -hmm. so... I really got to see and appreciate, like, uh, the kitchen. It's a lot of work. Yeah, and because you mentioned how, like, you know, you kind of look down upon it because it's a blue-collar job, but at the same time, it's such hard work. It's so hard, yeah. And I got to witness that firsthand last summer, and that was really interesting to, like, me to watch, like, the kitchen just, like, flow and, like, it's just, like, crazy when it's busy and stuff. Yeah, Netflix really romanticizes what it's like to be in some of those <laughs> kitchens. Um, it is messy, it is hot, it is so, so stressful. And it's wonderful at the same time. The camaraderie that you develop with the other cooks you work with um, is incredible. I did get to spend two years uh, working in restaurants while I was in culinary school and definitely got my butt kicked. I I used to whine that it's a young man's game. There are lots of women chefs who are extremely successful in their restaurants and in their career climb, and you have to love it to some sort of crazy degree to want (laughs) to stay there. And it's good. I think I would recommend everyone pull at least a summer job in a restaurant, preferably in the service side, in the back of house or the front of house, because I think it'll change how you are as a customer overall. I totally agree with that after doing that for three summers. It's, like, really eye-opening. Yeah. But uh, it's a lot of fun, though. Restaurants are crazy. Okay. I, like, I was an athlete growing up, and uh, so I, lo- I love team sports and stuff, played soccer, softball, basketball, whatever, you name it. And so, like, working in the restaurants, though, really kind of, like, uh, I, like, actually felt like, you know, my background with, like, working as a team and stuff, that communication, the competitiveness, like, you know, the fast pace, like, it kind of, like, was fun in that way, where it's, like, you know, you've got to be on top of your game every night, you know, when it's busy. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's yeah, a good have, experience. You have to bring your A game. And, uh-huh. I, you know, I, I think we're probably going in this direction with the conversation. So I'll just <laughs> go there. Um, being a female on the line and being a representative of, my, of a minority is a unique element to bring. I think people make assumptions about how you are as a professional woman, and they didn't, they weren't able to hang on to their stereotypes for very long about me because even though I am a youngish looking Chinese female, I don't act it because I wasn't raised in a Chinese culture. And so it seems that Asian women stereotypically get cut into a couple of roles, and the timid, easygoing one definitely is not me. 
I'm also not as insanely cutthroaty straightforward as, as another version could go where I'll just take you down. You know, I don't. <laughs> I'm actually quite collaborative. And I was in the military, and so I have a certain sense of right and wrong, and, and this is how we should do things. There's a brigade system that's inherent to how I was raised as a leader, and I'm more naturally a leader. So I also don't really wait for someone to take over or to decide that the line is theirs. I think those characteristics are ones that you can find in a lot of individuals, but definitely unexpected from a Chinese female, at least when you look at me the first two minutes coming into a line. <laughs> and I get that in, um, in technical sales now. As a research chef, you know, people are like, oh, she's, you know, she's just a research chef, don't worry about it. And then you know, I go for technical details, I go for um, a certain type of rapport that isn't typical about younger females. Um, I get along really well with that older generation of good old boys, which has been to my advantage at times. I think it's a dangerous area to play sometimes, too, because of the, our culture now of, of really needing to understand how to behave professionally with each other, whether you know that's across generations or between the genders. And so I have found myself sometimes thinking, okay, I need to be more aware of what those stereotypes are applied to women of color and how I'm going to represent them. Because even though we're adopted and we're raised by Caucasian parents, we are actually people of color and, and need to remember that how we're perceived does actually influence a people group that we may or may not identify with. It's really interesting that you say that. I hadn't really thought about it that way, but like, you know, I've definitely understood that like people see me totally differently, you know, they expect an Asian stereotype, but mm -hmm. instead they get someone who probably grew up a lot like them with right. similar values. But yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that then, since we're going in that direction. You were telling me beforehand how you were adopted in Hong Kong and you grew up in Hong Kong for a bit and then yeah. moved to mainland China. So this is pretty unusual for adoptees because most of them are, you know, adopted pretty young, and then they move to the States. And yeah. so most of their memories are from the States. And like, you know, you don't get they didn't, we didn't get any of that culture. So yeah, just tell me about your experience of growing up in Hong Kong, and particularly like being able to connect to the culture more then since you were living in China for uh, so long? One would think so. <laughs> <laughs> Um, my parents uh, were expats in Hong Kong and um, were among the first families to be able to adopt Hong Kong kids. So, yeah, you would think that my exposure to Chinese culture would have been more closely exposed than kids who were raised in the States without any other Asians around. But my parents really um, developed kind of an insular household in the sense that I, I felt like we grew up in Minnesota as an island inside Hong Kong, and you'd go out into, into Hong Kong, but it almost felt like a completely different world from what I was actually living in. I will say I have a really good ear for the language and can pick up pronunciation really easily. Doesn't mean I've learned the language very well. <laughs> I, can, I can order well, and then once the server asks me a real conversational question, I'm like, uh, hmm, let's go back to this menu, shall I? You know? And I, I think I have a passion for how the food is viewed in the Chinese culture that's different than in the American Chinese culture. I've actually seen those original foods in their context. And, and living in mainland China, kind of the same thing. My parents kept us 
somewhat separate. My mom had a lot of fear about the Asian culture, which is interesting because she had Asian kids. <laughs> um, but they, they often forgot that I was a Chinese kid. And so actually when, when um, I was receiving flyers from the colleges, like I alluded to before, um, my mom apparently got a letter about something related to affirmative action and, and how we should encourage our kids of minorities to go to college. And she was legitimately confused as to why she received that letter. I was like, um, Mom, I'm marked Asian <laughs> on my, on, you know, my whatever demographic form. It's like, okay. At the same time, though, I also have family friends in Hong Kong who are Hong Kongers. And so when we actually got to go back in 2011, so I was like 20, I don't know, I can't even do the math for that, 27, there we go. I went back to Hong Kong and visited an aunt who is Chinese, so she's an aunt with air quotes, and she was like, I need to teach you Chinese culture and food. And I was like, okay. And so I have all of these videos and notes of her just trying to like bring me up to speed. This is fried rice. This is fried noodles. You know, I was like, okay, oh my gosh. Because she was just like, you're not connected to your Chinese mm-hmm. culture. And I legitimately wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't actually cook intuitively as a Chinese chef or cook. I cook intuitively more Mediterranean food. Interesting. Strange, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people are like, oh, what is that funny looking thick soy sauce? And I'm like, I'm Googling that real quick. <laughs> I'm like, oh, look, Sirius Eats has something on it. <laughs> That's cool, though, that you were able to go to Hong Kong and then have an auntie like teach you want to teach you that yeah. stuff because for me I know I've like over the summer I did a project where I decided each week I was going to try to cook a Chinese dish oh, that nice. I really liked and I was gonna like sort of like uh reflect on the dish I made and how I made it and sort of the history behind the dish as sort of a way to like connect more with my Chinese culture yeah. I guess it was sort of like meditative just because like I really like cooking and I love Chinese food but I like would look at all these recipes and read about them and all I could think of was like how I wish I had like someone to like show me like oh you know like do it this way and I, d- I don't have that so it's like very much I just have to try to teach myself and like figure it out which I think is like interesting because like I feel like a lot of my friends have that grandma or that mom to teach them like oh this is like you know your great grandma's recipe and I'm going to teach you how to do it and maybe they don't care but it's like it's definitely like a privilege that like I think a lot of people don't think about yeah so. yeah no I actually worked with a girl who is Chinese American born and raised in San Francisco and she was going home for some sort of rice packet festival. That is completely not what it's called. <laughs> but they, they essentially give each other those banana leaf rice, um, sticky rice packets. Mm. And, and there's a myth involved with that or a historical story to it. And then there's a tradition around it. And I was like, hmm, it doesn't fit into Thanksgiving or Christmas. I'm confused. <laughs> you know. And so she was explaining this to me. And I'm listening and I'm absorbing this story, clearly not enough to remember right now, but um, I'm absorbing the story and I'm sort of feeling jealous, like, wow, I wish I'd had that heritage or that upbringing, that grandma, if you will. And I was kind of commenting on it to my cousins, my adopted cousins, about feeling disconnected from my ethnic heritage. And one of the cousins was like, yeah, but we don't know why these dumplings have prunes in them. I was like, oh yeah, we don't. <laughs> you know, I can do a knedliki, which is a Czech bohemian dumpling made with potatoes. You put an Italian prune or plum in there, wrap it all up, boil it. It's bland and sour and wonderful and homey <laughs> to me. But we don't necessarily know that story. So 
I guess my lesson from that was just because we don't have that family connection doesn't mean we can't access those stories. Mm -hmm. um, I think I had to get past my embarrassment of not knowing my physical heritage and just saying, well, tell me about that, you know, whether that's the girl I worked with or I have another uh, coworker who is Taiwanese American. And um, she is trying to do tea parties. Um, and we did an English tea party last time, but she's also doing Chinese tea parties, which I don't think is actually a thing. But you can make it an activity. And then you're learning about the tea. You're learning about some of the little items that you're serving. And I think it comes down to us researching it, exactly like you're doing. Cook a dish, read the research online, go find yourself a Chinese auntie of your own. <laughs> make one. You know? <laughs> So you grew up cooking a lot of like German, learning about, you know, that German food that your mm -hmm. parents grew up with. So when you were in Hong Kong and China, did you eat a lot of the local food then? Oh, dude. <laughs> <laughs> you want to talk about that, some of your favorite dishes oh. and stuff? Because I know Hong Kong is famous for its dim sum. Oh, so. it's a foodie city. Yeah, sure. yeah. So. so I'll preface this with we were there for six weeks volunteering at an orphanage that was founded by family friends in response to the permission that the British government was giving them to adopt. And so we got to spend a number of weeks working and living as locals. And in that amount of time, I gained a physical, um, like a, a visible amount of weight, where in pictures you can see the days that we first got to Hong Kong and the days that we got out of Hong Kong. And like, I'm a Chinese woman. Like, I don't put on weight super obviously, <laughs> which means I put on a ton of weight. I ate everything in sight. And I connected with a local businessman who, it was his pastime to drag Americans around the city and yeah. <laughs> stuff them with food. And my, my one requirement was, I cannot be able to access this food myself because I can't speak the language, because I don't know where it is, you know, whatever the, the parameters are. So he took us to temples, he took us to dim sum houses where we were knocking knees with three or four other businessmen at the table because they, were, they had to eat the red cooked pork trotters here right now. And I was like, pork trotters, yes. <laughs> so um, obviously, yeah, Hong Kong has um, the dim sum culture on lock. Um, and there are some actually some newer dim sum dishes that are being developed every year. So even if you go back to the same restaurants, they're probably going to roll out some new items. So you get the classics, right? And then you have to always leave room for at least two or three new ones every time. And I, I eat so much dim sum, you would think I'd been a starving individual that you <laughs> brought in off the streets. But the other foods that I really enjoy are um, like wonton noodles. And then I really fell in love with dan nai, which is an egg, egg milk custard. It's freakishly yellow because of the eggs in Hong Kong. And it's set more um, softly than an egg, like than a... Uh, it's more softly set than a lot of the custards you find in Western culture and cuisine. More similar to a creamy chomonmushi, which is a Japanese culture, which, uh, Japanese custard, which is usually savory. Um, these are sweet. They're very, very sweet. And it's eggs, milk, and sugar. And for the life of me, I cannot recreate it exactly the same. Um, and those are sold at the Australian milk, Australian dairy in Jordan Street, if you ever go to Hong Kong. <laughs> okay. Wait, are these the ones with the puff like pastry? No, no, similar, okay. but not as firm, and they're steamed and sold in little oh. um, Chinese rice bowls. Okay. And people queue up for them for, like, blocks. Wow. And you basically go in, you, when you finally get seated, you order either the white one or the yellow one. 
you eat that as fast as you can, which is really hard because they're super <laughs> And then you got to go. Like, drop your cash and run because um, the proprietors will give you stink eye because they've still got 100 people trying to That's come through. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. And all of the food in Hong Kong is like that. You're, you rush in, kind of. <laughs> you sit down. You enjoy the heck out of something for two minutes, and then you rush out. That's, that's the Hong Kong experience. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like so fun, though, like such an experience. Oh, yeah. I mean, you have to plan on weeks to do that. <laughs> the thing I'm working myself up to now is to have the courage to go live in an area I've not been to, so that requires learning the language better, and trying to find a job there, probably not like in a conventional restaurant, but say, go there to teach English, but then find a, uh, an individual who doesn't mind me hanging out and learning how to cook, mm. you know, and develop the knife skills that are particular to Chinese cuisine, and live the local life and learn what their special dish is. So we've been eyeing Kunming as an area to go to because it's really killer for rock climbing, which is mm. what my husband and I love doing together. And there's a really large expat community, so if you really just like have to speak English to somebody, you could go find people fairly easily. Um, and there are a lot of Chinese Americans who go back or who have gone to Kunming, Shanghai, and Beijing, so that you you're also not the one weird Chinese person who can't actually speak Chinese. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Because there, there's a big hurdle to get past for adoptees to just go learn the language and just be okay with the fact that you sound like a third grader, <laughs> even though you look totally like a local, obviously. Wow. So, um, and you know, you can do a version of that locally too. There is a, there are a couple of really well-known Asian American chefs in the Seattle area if you're, and you'd be surprised how many chefs will let you on their line on an off night, like on a Monday or a Sunday night, where it's like, yeah, you can peel all of these and just listen <laughs> to how the kitchen flows and what they're doing. I think there are ways that we can find connections to our food Without it having to be, you know, a bazillion dollar trip to Kunming. <laughs> but, you know, you can do that too. <laughs> oh, okay. Goals. I have to ask then, where's your favorite place in Seattle to get dim sum? Ooh, there is a split between Harbor City and Jade Garden. Uh, yeah. And I've gone to both. Um, a Hong Konger friend of mine who works at Starbucks, she and I went to Harbor City. And we actually thought that the Hagao was better there. They're a little bit more similar to that of the Hagao in Vancouver, okay. which clearly I've gone and tried Hagao <laughs> in all of the cities. Um, I would say go to Vancouver for dim sum if possible. We really liked, I think it was called Kirin, which is down in the Richmond era area. And really the food is better in that area because a lot of Hong Kongers ended up there. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of depends on what kind of experience you want. I think Jade Garden was still dragging the steam carts around when I was there last. They still are. Okay. <laughs> so, and that's really fun, especially when you have friends who've never been to dim sum. Mm-hmm. But if you just want good, hot dim sum that hasn't been sitting on a steam cart for <laughs> like 10 tables, then I think Harper City is a better win there. They kind of cram you in there, if I yeah. recall correctly. They both cram, like, going on a week. It's like I've taken friends now, like, for their first time, and it's just, like, such an experience on a weekend morning because there's so many people, and you just have to, like, fight your way to the front and be like, okay, let's do this, and then wait an hour or whatever. But (laughs) That's kind of the dim sum experience because they do that in Hong Kong and Vancouver. Okay. It's more polite. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) It's it's just the same in um, Hong Kong, Vancouver, San Francisco. I also did dim sum in, in New York. Oh, so that's cool. kind of my thing. Like, 
I try to find um, an opportunity to check out a, a similar cuisine across different cities mm. where, say, there's a larger immigrant population. I find that so fascinating. So I did Jewish food last time in New York, but the time before I did oh, Chinese cool. food. And really, in America, we're such a mixing pot, melting pot, whatever you want to call it, that us learning about the other cuisines is a way for us then to explore our own identity. And I think that's the piece is we're not restricted to Chinese culture and and um, heritage through food. We we have all of the cuisines that we can choose from, um, and you end up creating your own culture anyway. You know, as you grow up, you're going to find okay, I didn't like that particular <laughs> dish in Chinese food, but I really loved that execution in Japanese food or in Jewish food or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you'll find that one dish in Chinese qu- cooking that really resonates with you. For me, it's noodles. That was the one food that my mom was like, she's Chinese, she should probably have access to noodles. <laughs> like, okay, that's a weird thing to hang up on. But, so I have this obsession with noodles. What kind of noodles? Definitely the wonton noodle from okay. Mike's in, oh. in uh, Hong Kong. Um, there's a Mike's in Seattle, too. I don't know if they're the same, and I've never been there yet. Uh, I think I've been there. They, it's a very simple menu. It's mm-hmm. like straight up, just like, variations in wonton soup and then you can get kanji and like Ooh. that's that's it but like it's another one that's like packed on the weekends but it's really good nice. fast cheap you know fast quality food that's that's sort of the chinese cuisine so then that brings another question of upscaling ethnic cuisine can you charge more than fifteen dollars for a chinese dish this has always been a very interesting topic to me yeah and i have to say before i started my writing summer project or whatever i went with my parents to san francisco mainly because i love that city Mm. but also because of the chinatown there and the chinese culture and the chinese food because i had a week off and i was like i want to take a trip let's go to san francisco and all i want to do is eat chinese food there and so i picked out like a variety of chinese places all kind of different and we just like ate and it was so much fun but one of like the places i picked out was have you heard of mr jews i feel like i have it got a michelin star oh (laughs) yeah but the thing is it's like it's not that overpriced but it's definitely like a like fancy chinese place like the chef brandon jew he's um chinese grew up in san francisco um you know made his name like around town basically and opened up this shop like you know this restaurant in like the heart of like chinatown on i think it's like on waverly place really so it's like it's like the building's got a lot of history but the dishes are like traditional Chinese dishes, but with a modern twist. And the service was just like spectacular and the food was so good. And it definitely made me be like, ethnic view can be like priced higher when it's Mm -hmm. done well like this, you know, like there's no reason for it not to be. Yeah, and I've thought that about other cuisines too. Chinese food is, is interesting because there's an immigrant element to it where the Southern Chinese immigrated kind of more earlier because of um, the railroad construction. Mm -hmm. But then there was kind of a pushing out of that Chinese culture as well, where they kind of all got deported back to wherever wherever the boats happened to land, apparently. You know, so there's this Chinese-American food that is so distinct from people who are Chinese heritage born in the States, and then Chinese who immigrate um, recently. And the cuisines are very different, and I find them so fascinating. When I lived in um, the Sacramento Valley, California, it's between cities, essentially. 
There was one of the oldest Chinese American restaurants, and it was terrible and wonderful <laughs> at the same time. Because you had chop suey, and I was like, that's li- literally not a dish in China. <laughs> and and fortune cookies and and um, general Tso's chicken and stuff that, again, doesn't exist in Chinese mm-hmm. food, but it does exist in Chinese American food, mm-hmm. which is absolutely its own food culture. And they used a lot of cornstarch and MSG, and it was... Again, it was terrible and wonderful all at the same time. Because <laughs> it was like, oh, this is why the stereotypes exist. This is why that awful tasting chop suey in the can that you used to be able to find in the grocery stores existed. I'm, I'm not going to name the brand, but it was just like, <laughs> my, my grandparents would buy that and cook it for me and for my brother because they're like, this is your food. And I was like, this is not my food. <laughs> There's a, I don't know if you've seen it before, but if you haven't, you should check out. There's a documentary about American Chinese food. Oh, what's that called? called? It was on Netflix a while ago. I think it's called something like Finding General So's. Oh, or something like that's that. right. Yeah. I watched it and it was so interesting because in the movie, they go into the creation of chop suey. Mm-hmm. So it's basically like these Chinese immigrants trying to like, you know, make money and stuff. So they open up these shops. They try selling their, you know, normal Chinese <laughs> dishes. But as Americans do, we're like, that's different. Like, we yeah. don't like it. You, you know. <laughs> and so they're like, what can we make that's like we could, you know, that we could cook that like will appeal to them. And so chop suey was a vendor. They just took like bits of meat and bits of vegetables and like the sweet like you know sauce or whatever mm-hmm. was sort of like gravy they figured it would be like gravy to them so they just yeah. put it on top and uh <laughs> chop suey was made i guess and oh my word. that was their uh way of making money and stuff so slight weird oversharing story <laughs> <laughs> this past summer my mom's dad passed away and um so we all gathered in minnesota farming community literally like 4,000 people in the town, and I am the only Asian there because my brother hadn't gotten to town yet. (laughs) And so at his uh, memorial services reception, the church served a hot dish. It's literally called Oriental Hot Dish. I was like, okay, we'll just let that one go. (laughs) And it was ground beef, brown gravy, garlic powder, and Worcestershire sauce. Oh, and soy sauce somehow made it in there, too. And I was like, huh? (laughs) And, and like, it's weirdly comfort food to a lot of the the folks who grew up eating it. It was familiar to me. I don't love it. But it was very familiar. (laughs) And it was just like, huh, that's that's so funny. (laughs) Yeah, the, the Chinese-American cuisine and history is so interesting, and I'm, I definitely don't relate to the Chinese-American identity as a culture. You know, when people are like, oh, how do Asian-Americans feel about, you know, cultural appropriation of their food? Really nice, heavy topic right now. <laughs> um, and it's just like, I don't feel like I have the right to voice an opinion there because I'm not Chinese-American, I'm not ABC, you know, so it's just like, well, <laughs> this is what I've heard you know, people say, but I, I feel like I speak with the same lack of authority as someone just outside of any other topic. You know, you could ask me about the space program and I'd have comparable opinions. Whereas I think I identify slightly more with the immigrant experience and not even that, um, because I also couldn't tell you what the Chinese immigrant experience was. I haven't, you know, moved my household from one country to another hoping to pursue the American dream just to be thwarted because of racism or something, you know, I haven't (laughs) had that experience. I'm an adoptee and that's our culture as adoptees is absolutely unique and of its own. Mm -hmm. And I think that's 
an opportunity and can it can be really frustrating when we're young definitely <laughs> yeah, yeah there's absolutely. a lot of things that come up I feel like um, mm-hmm. you ignore them when you're younger I feel like and um, at least I did and yeah. a lot of people I've talked to you just kind of are like I don't really want to get into that and then all of a sudden you start developing your identity you're like who am I you know mm-hmm. what do I want to do with my life and those things start those questions start popping up and you're like wow yeah. it's time to uh, dig a little bit deeper you know what was for you I mean I'm you may have shared this on previous episodes, but what for you was that turning point where you felt the confidence to pursue and explore for yourself your identity and through food? That's a good question. Um, honestly, it wasn't until more recently, I think. I'm in the journalism program here, and I decided to write an article for one of my classes that got published in the Seattle Globalist about identifying as an adoptee, mm-hmm. but also an immigrant. Mm-hmm. And it was just sort of like when the whole, immig- like last year around this time, the whole immigration travel ban yeah. thing was a huge topic and it's still a topic today, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, I don't know, I went out to like a rally at Westlake and stuff and I just like stood there. I kind of made me reflect on like my immigrant identity, which as you said, like is totally different than the traditional mm-hmm. immigrant story and stuff. But at the same time, I feel like I can and I want to embrace that immigrant identity, even though it's not the typical story or image. And so I started writing about that and reflecting about it, I guess, and deciding I really do want to explore more of my Chinese, you know, identity and cultural identity. And um, it's just like food's just always been the one thing that's made me happy and like been proud, I guess, of being Chinese. Because, I mean, who doesn't love Chinese food, you know, even if they got the American version, like... (laughs) They still love it. So that's just been the way I've chosen to, I guess, connect because it's been easy and I grew up around food. My dad works at Ivers, and so I've worked there over the summer, so I've grown up around restaurants, and, you know, I worked in them, and I don't know. I just, like, I've always loved food, so it seemed the natural way to go figuring that out. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's a really great medium for meeting people Um, It's a great way, you know, as an icebreaker to get past that fear of strangers even. And frankly, everyone has to eat. It's why I went into food. (laughs) Job security and I get paid to eat. Nice. (laughs) Do you do a lot of Chinese cooking right now or uh, your Um, spare time, I guess? You know, I've actually been on a Korean food kick lately. Oh, yeah? Um, One, the VP of our team is Korean-American and so a friend of hers wrote a cookbook, and so she was giving them away. <laughs> and so I picked up one of the books, and I was like, gochujang sauce. Hmm, interesting. I should try that out. You know, and um, I've had Korean food. I have, I've gone to Korean barbecue twice. And it's an interesting medium because I don't have it, – sorry, it's an interesting cuisine because I don't have preconceived notions about it. I don't have that Chinese-American equivalent of chop suey. You know, I, there isn't really a chop suey for Korean food because – Korean immigrants seems like they got to introduce their cuisine appropriately instead of completely having to dumb it down. I think a Korean visitor may think that Korean American food is dumbed down, potentially, Mm -hmm. but I don't think it's as dumbed down the same way that the American Chinese cuisine was. And so I've, I've gotten into a kick of that. I have a ton of Chinese cookbooks. I have dim sum folding books, which... You really need a video and then probably somebody <laughs> to correct your dim sum yeah. folding because that, that, that was traumatizingly bad. Um, <laughs> really thick. 
as far as like Chinese dishes I'm cooking right now, I'm still working on my kanji program. <laughs> my aunt last time we saw her gave me a Ziploc of dried scallops. Don't tell TSA. Um, and I brought those home. And so I'm, I'm metering those out and trying to make good kanji. The kind I like is really thick and the rice is broken and cooked into it and the starches have been released and I get super food science nerdy about it. <laughs> and then in the end, you just have to have a good kanji. Um, I actually add ginger to mine and then we'll cook with um, like a light meat stock or bone stock that you have. And so the kanji I make is a little bit less bland than say the literal water and rice kanji. Yeah, so that's that's the one I'm working on. The one that I really like to figure out is the dandai, that egg custard I talked about. I can't figure it out. <laughs> I think I need either a sous vide or a rationale oven. <laughs> Steam injection, fancy schmancy, $50,000 oven. It's your Moby dick. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Chinese New Year's coming up. Do yeah. you, um, did you celebrate at all when you were growing up? I guess, like, you know. You were surrounded by it, uh, but uh, did your family do anything? You have any traditions? Do you plan to do anything this year? Um, Outstanding question. <laughs> um, you should be my therapist, apparently. <laughs> um, so my parents, when we lived overseas, would get invited to events, and we would attend those. And there was no attempt made to understand why we were doing what we were doing. The dishes, the fireworks, the the lion dancing, any of that stuff, no explanation. It was it was like getting dropped onto a different planet. And they were, they were just like, wow, this is so weird. Okay, let's go. <laughs> and it's like, you know, and, and so I'm very vocal about that because, not because I have a bad relationship with my parents, but because people who adopt, people who are adopted, need to consider how they want to integrate their kids' heritage into their lives. It's like marrying into another culture. If you marry... If you marry an actual German, you will end up taking on some of those German cultures, the holidays, the ways you communicate. And I think parents who adopt kids from a different race should also consider that. I made that case when a friend was starting the adoption process for an African child. Mm -hmm. It's like, you're going to have to learn French. You're going to have to learn what that's like. And you have to understand now that you're taking on the stereotypes into your own life that are good and bad about that race. So. The same thing with Chinese New Year. My parents didn't really look into that, and I really wish they had. Um, so I started looking into it, and my husband and I do actually attend uh, the Wing Lake Museum events. Still don't always know what's going on, <laughs> and I still try to eavesdrop like on the presentations that are definitely designed for five-year-olds, yeah. because that's really where my, my understanding is. And I actually have taken off those days before as holidays, because even though it's not... A recognized holiday in the states, you know, for bank holidays. Um, it's one that I think we should start to bring into our lives. Plus, like, it's really good food, and it's, it's an excuse to go to dim sum. Um, you know, it's a loud, ruckus, fun events. Yeah. When we were in Hong Kong volunteering for the orphanage, I actually timed it so that we would be there during oh. Chinese New Year, and it was insane. <laughs> and, and getting to see that how a culture celebrates a major holiday in its own context absolutely worth it. Just definitely just go do that at some point in your life. Plan to be there for a very long time and don't <laughs> be in a rush to get anywhere. I Last year, I decided to cook some Chinese food, my attempt at Chinese I food know. for some of my roommates. And that was like super fun. And they requested I do it again. Yes. They don't know any better that my <laughs> Chinese food is like 
not like super like authentic at all, but like you know, make some noodles and uh, put some garlic and soy sauce in them. But I've been working on my uh, dumplings. Ooh. So uh, my main struggle right now though is like the folding. Oh my I'm, gosh. I like I I know how to make the dough like the wrappers from scratch. Like that's not like hard. And I do a shrimp filling with some chive and stuff. Mm-hmm. That's not hard. It's literally just like the folding. Putting it back together. Yeah, putting it together. It's just I try. I like you know watch the YouTube video, pause it, like, slow-mo, like, and I'm just, I still come up with, like, just these little, like, pouches. I mean, they taste good, but, like, (laughs) they do not look pretty, so, um, I'm gonna work on that this year, and last year I made egg tarts from scratch, and that was a lot of work, but I think it was worth it, and so I may do that again, but, uh, yeah, it'll be fun. I, enjoy taking making the excuse to go get Chinese food yeah you know I I was really fortunate to meet a girl who's Chinese heritage she, she was born in Yakima her parents mm. emigrated and um she really is the one who displayed a lot of extra patience with me as I was like okay explain why you're doing it this way <laughs> um and we kind of tease each other where I, I'll call her Jia Jia which is just older sister it's an homage to what we've been doing and what our relationship sort of looks like and also a recognition of her impact on my identity in recent years because she has the dumpling folding, um, <laughs> you know, down to a, an art where she actually was asked by two different restaurants locally to fold dumplings for them as a special. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So the, the fun thing about dumplings is that as terrible as they may look, they do all taste the same. And uh, if you do it at <laughs> home, you know, you're only folding like 60. If you're doing it in a restaurant, you're literally folding hundreds of them. Um, oh, I, I can fold a good kreplach, which is Jewish. Um, <laughs> go me. <laughs> um, and actually, and can enroll a good matzo ball. And those, those are cuisines that are, are comparable in, uh-huh. in certain, like, that hearty heritage. So once you've folded 600... You'll probably be pretty good. Figure it out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Guys, we're not going to have anything else besides dumplings tonight, right. so I can perfect my folding. <laughs> you have to do it in four hours, <laughs> so just get on that. <laughs> Call in from work. You're Sorry, right. I gotta got to practice folding my dumplings. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, well, we are coming to the end, oh. but uh, one of the questions I like to end with is uh, for my guests to share one of their favorite food memories. So a memory that has to deal with food, like any type of food, that just makes them really happy to think about. Man, I think my favorite food memory is actually a more recent one where my aunt is teaching me how to cook these certain dishes. You know, she's like, okay, you need to learn six dishes. If you're going to be any type of Chinese wife, you need to know these. And I'm like, okay. And it was um, like a black bean sauce, asparagus, shrimp and, I think it was shrimp and asparagus, chicken and, you know, chicken and cashews or whatever it is. And the memory, I think, is us spending that time together and connecting as Chinese women. And it didn't even matter that there were language challenges, cultural differences. You know, my upbringing was totally crazy compared to comparatively. It's that connection that you have with someone just cooking or watching them cook or attempting to fold a dumpling next to them is just so poignant and, and every time I make those dishes, I think of her in that attempt to hand off some element of her culture to the next generation. 
Thank you. And then before I forget, you want to mention you, you can do a little plug for your own podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot to do that at the beginning, but make sure I get it here in the end. Thank you. Yeah, I'm the host of the Peas on Moss podcast. It is an alliterative play on mise en place, which is a French culinary term. Uh, mise en place refers to having everything in its place and being ready for what's next in cooking. And my life has been everything but totally planned out, um, <laughs> including my cooking career. So um, I use the Peas on Moss podcast to meet other research chefs to talk about product development, uh, food science, food business ownership, and encourage other chefs to consider it as a really good career option. You don't have to stay in a restaurant. Um, earlier I said cooking is blue collar. That was definitely a perception I had. It's hard, hard work. But there is so much science and passion and art involved that my opinion has definitely changed about it. And the Peas on Moss podcast is a way to talk about the career in the industry and to talk to the people who are in it who are not going to become household names. You know, we're not chef so-and-so with all of these awards. It's somebody who, like me, you're never going to see me on the front. But you'll probably have tried some of the products I've worked on. I will be sure to provide a link oh, with this you. podcast to promote that. Thank you so much, Kimberly, for being on my show. This thank was, uh, I think, a really fun episode for me personally, and hopefully our listeners enjoyed it too. Yeah, thank you so much. Of course. Thank you for listening. This has been another episode of Home Plates. <laughs>